Well, good morning, church. It's so good to see you guys. If you have your Bibles or the Bible app, make sure you're in Jonah chapter 1. I want to tell you guys a story real quick. There was a farmer who had three sons. What was interesting about this family is they wanted nothing to do with church and nothing to do with God. The local church, the people would go and, and fulfill practical needs. They would go and love on them. They would go and minister to them. And every time the family is like, thanks, but no thanks. That all changed when one day one of the sons went out and he got bit by a rattlesnake. Now, they caught it pretty quick, so the doctor came, and the doctor's trying to help with the families. Like, we're worried. We don't know what to do, so they called the pastor, and the pastor came in and assessed the situation and kind of prayed a really strange, crazy prayer. He said, God, we thank you for this rattlesnake. God, we thank you that although we've tried all the good works, we've tried sharing our testimonies, we've tried sharing the gospel, their hearts were closed, but this rattlesnake in your wisdom did what we could never do. So, God, we actually pray for more rattlesnakes to come and bite the other sons. And the biggest rattlesnake of all to come and bite the farmer. Amen. And the family's like, oh, here we go. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I love the story of Jonah because the story of Jonah is basically God sending a bigger snake after Jonah. But it wasn't a snake. It was a fish. The phrase, but God, is in the Bible 45 times. And the phrase, but the Lord, appears 60 times. So that's over 100 times that something like, but God, shows up. There are difficult situations in our life, but what I love about that is that it means that but God means God inserted himself in their story and in our story. It means that no matter who you are, what you've done, how you have failed, what problems keep dogging your life, God can change things for you. The phrase points to a greater truth, that God steps outside of heaven and begins to pursue us and make a difference in our life. When enough happens in our life, we begin to think of life as meaningless and forget the things that God has done, even consider sometimes him to not be active. Now, most of us in this room and even statistically through this nation aren't atheist or agnostic, but I would say we have a lot of practical deists in the room. We believe that there is a God, that he may have created the world, but then he stepped back and he's not involved in our day-to-day business. But the Bible portrays God in a very different point of view. He may be working behind the scenes, but he is working nonetheless. Jonah is the story of a man who ran from God, who who did everything he could to get away from God, and a God that pursued him to the ends of the earth. It's a story of a prodigal prophet and a pursuing God. Jonah ran from God's will and calling. He ran from his responsibility, but God. My testimony is just like yours. I spent most of my life running from God, and one day... God found me and I repented and turned to him. And now, instead of running away from God, I run with God. God inserts himself into our life and our situation. Jonah's testimony is broken into three phases. Jonah ran from God. Then Jonah ran to God. And from then on, Jonah ran with God. We run from God, but there's a moment that we come to where we run to him rather than from him. And our lives take on a different meaning like no other. You could say that God said go, Jonah said no, and God said, oh? Let's pray this morning. God, I thank you for who you are and what you've done. I pray as we look at this story that, God, we wouldn't see it as some some parable or some allegory from back then, but, God, we would realize that the same God that was active in the story is active in our lives today. God, we thank you for who you are and what you continue to do. In your name we pray, amen.
We're going to read through Jonah, starting uh, chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord gave his message to Jonah, the son of Mattai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Now I'm going to kind of paraphrase the next little bit of the story because I'm not winded enough to keep reading that whole passage, but the storm comes and the sailors freak out. Now something interesting I think we need to keep in mind is these aren't like me and Donnie. These aren't like pastime fishermen. These are professional sailors. They, they're on the ocean all the time, and they're scared of the storm. That tells us that this is a pretty intense storm. And so they begin to panic and start to throw stuff off the ship, and even that's not enough. They're like, we're going to sink and we're going to die. And they begin to cast lots, and they realize that Jonah, according to, to their lots, is the issue. So they go downstairs, and they find Jonah asleep. He kind of likes the waterbed style. It's pretty cool. And so they grab him and pull him up and begin to interrogate him. And, and finally he says, I'm a prophet from Israel, and I work for God. And they begin to panic, and they're like, what do we do? And he says, throw me overboard, and the storm will stop. But they're like, I don't really want that on my conscience. So they keep trying and eventually say, God, there's, there's nothing we can do. Please don't hold this against us. And they throw Jonah overboard, and it says that the storm dies instantly as soon as Jonah, as soon as Jonah hits the water. Something that I find really funny about the story, too, is in Jonah's pursuit to get away from the will of God, it says that the sailors after this actually repented and made commitments to the Lord. So even in Jonah's disobedience, God's using it to draw people onto himself. It's crazy. It's crazy. So Jonah hits the water, and continuing in verse 17, it says, Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Super weird spa day. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from inside the fish. What's interesting about the story is Jonah doesn't actually pray until that moment in chapter 2. He's a prayerless prophet. But now he begins to pray. Skipping over chapter 2 in his prayer, we'll get to it later. Jumping to chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. This time Jonah obeyed and the Lord... And the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a great city so large that it took three days to see it all. Without reading all these verses, I want to show you three life lessons that we can get from Jonah, the prodigal prophet. The first one, if you're taking notes, is this. God's call doesn't guarantee our success. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 1, God spoke and commissioned Jonah. God gives Jonah a mission and Jonah rejects it and runs. Now, here's something interesting about the city of Nineveh. It was the capital of the Syrian Empire, the mortal enemy of Israel and the Jews. It's kind of like Canada, you know. They will take 10 of the tribe. Later on, they take 10 of Israel's tribes captive. So we see that um, Jonah's very familiar with them. They even later on take over this country. Nineveh was 550 miles northeast where Jonah was in Israel. Tarshish is 2,500 miles west. It's where the Mediterranean empties into the Atlantic. So Jonah's, from his point of view, is going geographically as far away from where God told him to go as he knew how to do. So it's like Jonah went outside, grabbed a compass, and said, God wants me to go this way, so I'm going to go as far to the other side as I can go. Now, some of you may not know this. 
Um, if you don't, you're going to know now. I have a dog. Her name is Gray. She is a half husky, half Malamute, and 100% a problem in my life. She's so cute, so smart, so disobedient. So the other day, I take Gray outside, and I let her play around, and me and Gray have this understanding that I'm going to call her and say, hey, Gray, come here, and she's going to run the other way. So what makes me mad isn't that she's playing or anything like that, but it's that she, she is so smart, and my wife tells me I'm crazy, but she knows what she's doing because I'll call her, and she'll take a few steps, turn around and look at me, and then I'll say, Gray, come here, and she just smiles and begins to run the other way. Well, one day, I, a few weeks ago, I step outside, and I see this car coming down our road, and I'm, I'm getting worried because I'm like, oh, man, here we go. This is not going to be good. How am I going to tell my wife I need to get a new dog? You know, I'm going through all the, the horror stories. And so the worst thing I could do, I do, I go out and say, great, come here. And she looks at me, smiles, and starts to take off. And she begins to take off looking at me, kind of like how a football player looks to catch a pass. She's like looking behind her, grinning, going. And I'm getting worried because here's the car, here's her, here, here it is. And bam, she doesn't get hit by the car, but she actually runs into the car. And so the driver gets out, and he's like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm like, you, you didn't do anything. She wasn't hurt, but she was so focused on being disobedient that she actually physically ran and smashed herself into a car. It was hilarious. But the call of the master does not guarantee the obedience of the one being called. Has God placed a calling on your life? Spoiler alert. Yes, he has. He saved you for a purpose, and that's his purpose. Every single Christian has a calling. And a Christian without a ministry is a contradiction. We are all called. So the real question is, are you resisting that call? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, you see your calling. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says, walk worthy of the calling he has called you. Now some of you are thinking, I've never heard God come down and say, Ty, follow my lead. And the first thing I say is, of course not. He would use your name, not my name. So that's step number one. But secondly, maybe some of us are expecting this kind of Hollywood moment where the clouds are going to part and the sun's going to shine down and he's going to be like, my child. He's going to sound weirdly like Darth Vader. Come to me. I find your lack of faith disturbing. It's kind of crazy. But I just, I just want to say this. For some of us, I think the problem really is is we're so busy deciding how our life's going to be and pursuing that that we don't even slow down enough to hear from God. We metaphorically have our fingers in our ears, and so we don't even allow God to speak to us because we're too busy living according to what we think is right. Jonah eventually does obey God, and he sees incredible success. The whole city of Nineveh, it's about 600,000 people, turn to God. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, it says, So the people of Nineveh believed God. I think that's about the most understated verse in the Bible. 600,000 people come to, know, come to know God, and it just says, yeah, Nineveh believed God. That's awesome. He will eventually see great success, but that's after a lot of wasted time and an extraordinary amount of pain. See, Jonah in chapter 1, verse 3, it says, but Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Three times in the book of Jonah, the text talks about Jonah going down, down, and down. And it means literally, but I think there's a metaphorical point to this about his spiritual life. What's interesting is in today's culture, Jonah would be 
not only accepted, but celebrated. Yeah, man, you live for your freedom. You live for what you want to do. You follow your passions. You, you, you live your liberations. But every time, any step we take away from God's will, we're going down. And we're going down in an earlier round. And sugar, we're going down swinging. <laughs> Jonah bought a ticket, and he got on board the ship. That's such a haunting phrase to me, and here's why. He paid to go 2,500 uh, miles west to the coast of Spain. Did he reach his destination? No. He encountered a Mediterranean storm. In fact, these storms were so common that this is believed to be the same storm that hit Paul later on when he shipwrecked. When you go your own way, you never get to your destination, but you always end up paying the fare. When you go God's way, you always get to your destination, and God will pay the fare. Now, I believe Jonah illustrates the first half of that. He, he pays his own way, and he doesn't make it, but somebody else, I think, greatly illustrates the second one, which is Moses' mother. She takes baby Mo and says, I ain't going to see you no Mo." <laughs> she puts him in a basket and puts him on the Nile River and sends him away, saying, God, I believe I'm having faith that you will take care of him. And Moses is later found by the, like in the palace by a handmaiden of the Egyptian princess. And so she takes Moses as a baby to the Egyptian princess, and the Egyptian princess says, I love this kid. I want to take care of him, but that sounds kind of like a lot of work. So why don't you go get one of the Hebrew ladies, and we're going to pay them to take care of this child for me. Do you know who they end up grabbing? Moses' mother. And so they actually grab her, bring her in, and saying, hey, we're going to pay you to take care of what they didn't know is your own baby, raise them, nurse them, all that good stuff. Now, can you imagine if somebody came to you and said, hey, I'm going to pay for you to take care of your own child? That would be amazing. In fact, in 2021, apart from college tuition, do you know how much it costs to raise a child? About $250,000 on average. So if somebody, you know, I'm expecting a daughter, if someone came to me and said, I'd like to pay for that, I'm like, dude, do it. I love it. So Moses' mother gets to raise Moses, and the Egyptian government pays for it. And God arranged that. God arranged it. But it says, but Jonah ran. He's a prophet, right? What's a prophet's job? To speak on behalf of the Lord. So obviously he's not understanding his job description. He's in fact probably the worst missionary in history. So why did he run? There's a couple of possibilities. Number one, it was too tough. When you walk from Israel to Nineveh, it's 550 miles through the desert. This isn't like Bend Resort Desert. This is like nasty Middle East desert. When he gets to the place of Nineveh, he'd have to tell them about an unknown God that they don't know and they don't care about. In fact, here's what's interesting about Nineveh. It was actually uh, started by a guy named Nimrod from the Bible who was the great-grandson of Noah. And when he found Nineveh, he actually, when he called it Nineveh, it actually means resident of Nunu, which I thought was a really cool name, which is an Akkadian word for fish. So he starts this fish town on the Tigris River where they actually worship a fish god. And what's cool about this is when, when Jonah finally goes there after being spit out three days and three nights in the fish, it's actually believed that one of the reasons why they listened to him so well is because he came bleached out, smelling like fish, looking probably like having fish guts all over him, looking like a fish, and they're like, man, this guy speaks on behalf of the fish god. So they're attentive. So God, again, uses his disobedience for his glory. 
The second possibility is maybe Jonah thought it was too dangerous. The Ninevites were known for their brutality. In verse 1, God says, I have seen how wicked its people are. There's another prophet that was sent to talk to Nineveh. His name was Nahum, and he says this, It's a bloody city. A great number of bodies and countless corpses are there. The Ninevites were known for disembodying people, for decapitating people, for burning people alive. In fact, one of their emperors, who has a name I'm not even going to try to pronounce, would rip the lips off people and then rip off their hands and feet while they were still alive and then begin to kill them. In fact, another descendant of his would actually flay his captives alive. And then later when he killed them, he would take their heads and lay it on the gateway to his city. So when you walk towards Nineveh, you would just pass lines and lines of skulls. It's not a fun place to go. So we can't really blame Jonah if that's why he didn't want to go. But that's not the real reason. It wasn't because it was too hard. It wasn't because it was too dangerous. But it was because it was too disdainful for him. Because he knew that his preaching would work. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, uh, skipping ahead in the story, God, uh, the scripture says, when God saw what they had done and the, how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. His preaching worked. You think he'd be excited going, yes, yes. I mean, that'd be like everybody in Springfield coming to know Jesus today. We'd be excited. But not Jonah. He's not excited In fact, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. So Jonah admits that he knows what kind of person God is, that he forgives people and he loves people. But here's the problem. Jonah is a racist. Jonah's prejudiced. Jonah has a bad attitude. You've got to be pretty bitter to have that many people repent and respond to God and then say, I'd rather be dead than see that happen. Because he didn't love the very people that God loved. And before we get too hard on Jonah about this, this would be like God sending us to our worst enemies. In fact, it's even worse because Jonah, believe it or not, when he's talked about in other places of the Bible, was a false prophet. Everybody, all all the prophets at that time were telling the king of Israel, you are wicked and God is going to destroy you using the Assyrians. And Jonah's the guy sitting in his ear going, nah, man, God ain't like that. He loves you. He doesn't care if you do all these wicked things. He's got you. And now God ironically chose him to go tell the people that he knew was going to destroy his country and bless them. That's hard. That would be like God back in the day going to a rabbi in Manhattan and saying, I want you to go over to Berlin, talk to Adolf Hitler and the Nazis and tell them that I love them and I forgive them. He's going to be like, nah, I think there's a cruise to Hawaii. Peace out. Some people actually like to live in their bitterness because it's comfortable. We understand it. But here's the problem with bitterness. It blinds us. It says Jonah went to flee from the presence of the Lord. But can we actually do that? Can we go anywhere that God doesn't follow? And here's the thing. Jonah knew that. 
because Jonah knew the scriptures well. In fact, King David, who wrote most of the Psalms, had already lived and passed by then. And he wrote a Psalms 139, which Jonah would have been familiar with. And it says this, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, behold, even there your hand will hold me. Jonah knew, but his blindness, his blindness overtook him because of the bitterness in his heart. Point number two, knowing truth doesn't mean doing truth. It says that then Jonah prayed the Lord his God from inside the fish. Now, reading this prayer, it's really interesting. He references the Old Testament 11 times. Nine of those happen from the Psalms, one from Lamentation, one from Job. And here's what's funny, is if we've ever seen the difference between somebody who, you know, knows they're going to pray and has like a script written out or somebody that's in the midst of something and that just comes out, we know there's a big difference. If I'm going through something and and my heart's broken and I'm teared up, I'm not going to be like, hold on a second and pull out a little piece of paper and read from it. When we begin to be in these hard times, we pray spontaneously. We pray emotionally. And Jonah, in his prayer, in that time, quotes scripture. So that tells us that Jonah knew the scripture very, very well because it's just coming out of him. It's not rehearsed. And that tells us that exposure to scripture doesn't guarantee a godly life. The Pharisees knew the scriptures, right? Knowing truth is not the same as doing truth. His words were bathed in biblical truth, but his actions were bathed in self-will and bitterness. A theologian I love said this, if you know the words of the Bible but don't take them to heart, it's practical atheism. To run from God is to be digested in the belly of your own pride and arrogance. See, after the Last Supper, Jesus took a basin of water and he laid it down and he began to wash all the feet of his disciples. And he told them, I'm doing this as an example unto you. But then he said, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. He doesn't say happy are you if you underline them, if you memorize them, if you teach them to other people. The joy is not in the knowing. The joy is not in what you know. We can study a scripture that stirs us emotionally or challenges us intellectually, but it will never bless us spiritually unless we do what we know. I think Jesus made this apparent in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, when it says, so why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I think that's a great question. We ought to think of the Bible as like a map or a GPS because it's not just about putting in the right coordinates. My wife's over visiting her family in Washington. I could, you know, after this, put in the coordinates and sit there in my truck and say, okay, the coordinates are in. It's been an hour. Why, am I, why, why is she not here? Why am I not there? Because it's not just about knowing the right way to go, but then it's about following through and going. Sometimes we have a problem because we don't really believe what we say we believe. There's two forms of theology. We have a prescribed theology and a practical theology. And our prescribed theology says, Jesus is Lord, but our practical theology says, Jesus isn't Lord, I'm Lord. Because if Jesus is Lord, then why are we sleeping around? Why are we lying? Why are we cheating? Why are we doing all of these things that go against what he told us to do? People think, 
that if they talk and act like a Christian, that makes them a Christian. It reminds me of this story of a goat that wanted to be a lion. And this goat decided, you know what, I want to be a lion. So he went out, and every day he'd, you know, do his little bee, like his little bleep. And he'd pretend that it's a lion's roar. He'd work himself up. Yeah, that sounds majestic. And then he'd walk around and shake his little stubby tail and say, that's, that's just like the lion's tail. I'm like king of the jungle. And he said, the only thing that I'm missing is going where the lions go. So the next day at lunchtime, he went to where the lions went. And that's the end of the story because that's the end of the goat. People think if I go where Christians go and talk like Christians talk and sing like Christians sing, I am one. What can I tell you? Then you're lying. Sorry, that was a terrible joke. (laughs) My last point, your willfulness won't stop God's will. When we read the story at the beginning and we barely get into it, we might think the story's over. Because when you read verse 3, it says that, but Jonah, and he doesn't listen. But can I tell you in verse 4 it says, but God. Jonah fled, but God sent a storm. Jonah fled, but God sent a fish. The Lord came to Jonah a second time, and Jonah went. And I'm so thankful that we have the God of second chances. Because can I tell you, if God wants Jonah, or if God wants Nineveh to be reached, Nineveh's going to be reached, whether by Jonah or somebody else. We see this in the book of Esther. Esther's the queen. And there's this guy named Haman that works for the king. He's like one of his advisors. And he is so mad about all this, all this favor that the Jewish people are getting that he decides to implement this crazy genocide to wipe out the Jews. And Esther's uncle, Mordecai, hears about it. And he comes to Esther and says, you need to talk to the king. She's like, I don't think you understand how this works. I can't just talk and barge in whenever I want. I could die. And Mordecai says, if you keep quiet at this time, deliverance will the, from the, uh, for the Jews will arise from another place. He's saying, it's going to happen one way or the other. But you and your relatives will die. What's more, who can say but that you haven't been elevated for such a time as this? And that's where we're at in the book of Jonah. God shows his severe mercy, not just to the Ninevites, but also to Jonah himself. If I was the guy in charge of picking prophets, I'm just going to be honest, I probably wouldn't have picked Jonah. My God, he said no. Who cares? There's plenty of prophets that will say yes right away. But God went through a lot of trouble to use Jonah. Don't you agree? Because God is in the business of using the most unlikely people like me and like you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, it says, Instead, God chose these things the world considered foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God won't force you to do anything, but can I tell you, God's very persuasive. Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh responded, responded saying, I'm the Pharaoh, you're not. I'm in charge, you're not. No way. And God persuaded him through a few plagues, aggressive negotiations, as, you, as it were. And the Pharaoh was persuaded. If God's still small voice doesn't work on you, you may want to buy some storm insurance. There's some people in the Bible that I love. God speaks to them, and they automatically go. Samuel was like that. He would always respond with, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. And there's other people that aren't, that aren't like that. 
Take, for example, Pastor Brent mentioned Jacob last week. Jacob had to wrestle with God all night. And it says that he walked away never the same. Proverbs 15.10 says, Whoever abandons the right path will be severely disciplined. Whoever hates correction will die. The NTV version, the New Thai version, says it like this. That was hilarious, whatever. If you want to fight God, he can take you on. I want to conclude with this story. There's this woman at a gas station. She'd got all of her snacks. She was excited to meet her friends up for a camping trip. Um, She goes, gets her snacks, gets her gas, gets in her car, and begins to drive down the highway. Within a few minutes, she starts to know that this truck driver is following her very, very closely. Every time she gets a little nervous, so every time he would get too close, he would move, she would move over to the next lane, and then he would follow. And then she'd try to take a turn, and he would follow. And then he started to lay on his horn, and she's getting so scared and so nervous, she keeps trying to get out of his way that eventually she just decides to pull into a gas station parking lot, doesn't even let the car come to a complete stop, just pushes open the door and begins to scream, help, 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 this man's going to try to get me. And the truck driver gets out of his truck, runs to her back seat, opens the door, and pulls out a man with a knife. See, she didn't realize that a man with, with bad intentions jumped into her back seat with a knife waiting for the moment that she was alone so he can get her because she didn't have the vantage point to see, but the truck driver did. And that's the story of how I met my wife. I'm just kidding. That was hilarious. <laughs> um, but often in our life, we run from God kicking and screaming, thinking to ourselves, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? You Get away from me. Get away from me. You're going to hurt me. You're going to hurt me. And God's saying, you can't see what I see. You don't have the same vantage point that I do. Whatever God's call on your life is, the quicker you say, speak, Lord, your servant hears, the better off you'll be. Let's pray this morning. God, right now, I love you. God, I thank you for this awesome church. I thank you for this awesome people. Mostly, God, I thank you for being an awesome God. I thank you that we as a people get to share the awesome testimony of even being your enemies wasn't enough because you pursued us anyways. That as we were kicking and screaming and running for help, God, you pursued us for our sake. God, I thank you that you sent your son on the cross to offer us the same merciful second chance that you offered Jonah. God, I pray we wouldn't be people of of religiosity. God, we wouldn't be people that just know the scriptures, but we would be people that know how to follow you. That as you're a faithful God, we would be known as a faithful people. This morning I want to do something kind of weird, but I just want to take a few minutes and sit in the presence of the Lord because I think there's a few people in this room. One, I think there's people here that have never experienced the but God moment in their life. You've been running for so long that it's time to stop, let God catch you, and begin to run with him. I think there's a second group of us that God is telling us to obey. He's given us a call, and we're scared, or it's hard, or it's, it's doing things that we don't want to do. Can I just encourage you, take this moment and get right with God. Thirdly, I think there's a few people here that are in the same place as those sailors on the boat. You've had people in your life that have been telling you about God. You've been around Christians. You've been around church. You're like that goat who's walking the walk and talking the talk, but today it's time to make it real. And lastly, and this wasn't in my notes, but I think it's, it's so important. God just put on my heart as I was 
as I was praying during worship and as, as I was, um, as I was just talking to him, there's somebody here that has an issue with like of healing. Like there's something on your body that hurts. I, sorry, I don't mean to be like, um, I don't mean to, to not give a lot of details, but I just really felt like there's somebody here who's been hurting physically for a long time and you've been prayed for, you've gone up and it's never happened. And can I tell you, there's a scripture in the Bible that I love that talks about this woman who goes before this judge who's corrupt and he robs her and she goes every night and bangs on his door and, and cries out for justice. And she does this for so long that the judge gets so frustrated. He's like, I'll give you your justice. Just leave me alone. Now God's a just God and God's a loving God. He's not, he's not trying to rob you of anything, but that scripture highlights that we need to have some tenacity in our faith and our prayer. So if that's you and you haven't been healed yet, come find me. And let's pray for you. Because even if it doesn't happen today, we're going to keep praying day after day, week after week, moment by moment until you are healed. In the last service, I was so excited because I felt like God had given me a word that somebody there had had a calling and they spent so long running away from it that they felt like God had moved on from them. And I had three different people come up and say, that that's me. And I'm not saying that to, you know, be like, yay for anybody but God. But I say that to say that sometimes we think, oh, that's for this person, so it can't be for me. Come. God is a personal God. God's calling you. God's given you a testimony. God's given you a work. Don't sell yourself short. Come. God's got more for us. He's got more for me. He's got more for you. He's got more for all of us. Let's just begin to pursue him. Let's just take a few minutes to just be in his presence. This morning, we have these awesome connection cards. And this is basically our way as a, as a church leadership, as elders and pastors, to be able to steward this church well. So if God's began to do something in your life, you can find our connection cards either in the seat before you or at nlcchurch.com slash connect, or I think it's on that Bible app that you're on as well. But be faithful stewarding the testimony that God's given you. So if God's doing something in your life, share with us, whether it's that we can pray for you for something we're still believing for, or if God has done something. Can I just tell you, one of the, I'll just be frank, one of the hardest parts of being a pastor is everyone wants to come with you with the hard stuff, which is great. I want to pray. I want to be there for you. But when God begins to do stuff in their life, it's like they forget to tell you. It's like, hey, thanks for being through all that hard stuff. It's good now. Peace out. And you're like, dude, I want to celebrate with you. It's like, it's so easy to get bogged down in this life and think that everything is just one hardship after the other. But he, even though it's dark in the night, he brings joy in the morning. Amen. And so we want to, we want to be excited with you. We want to steward your testimony as well. We want to give opportunities to share whether online or here in the service, what God is doing. Because it's easy for us to try to convince people with words. But Paul says not by words alone, but by the demonstration of God's power. And so if God is moving powerfully in your life, please share. 
please share. God, right now, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for these awesome, awesome people. I pray as we sing another song of how awesome you are and how glorious you are and what you do in our lives, God, I pray that we wouldn't just sing the words, but God, we would know them in our hearts. That God, this wouldn't just be a service that gets us through the week, but God, this would be a time that we say, I remember that day, I walked away never the same. God, we thank you for who you are and what you will continue to do. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Ty. Well, this morning, finish filling out those connection cards. If you have a paper one, we're going to drop it in the offering plate as it comes by here in just a moment. Thank you, ushers, for being so pre- ready and prepared. We're going to give in our regular tithes and offerings. Thank you for your faithfulness in giving. God is good. Amen. Oh, God is good. Amen. Amen. So right now we give with joy. We give with thanksgiving in our hearts. And uh, we, we, we thank you so much for, uh, for being faithful and obedient to God. So right now, let's give. Father, we thank you so much for all you do for us. And right now is yet another act of worship and praise. We give. We give with the knowledge that you uh, have everything under control.